Well, we've been looking at Isaiah 40 and its fulfillment in uh, Luke uh, chapter 3. And it was the prophecy directly about John the Baptist that he would come and prepare the way for the Lord. The application for us today is that we are to be a people that prepare the way for the Lord. And we've been looking at how that works out. And so um, last week we looked at the part of the prophecy that said that every mountain shall uh, be torn down. And we looked at what some of those mountains can be. And um, even as they are put in the uh, in this prophecy, there's nothing absolutely firm we can say, well, this is a mountain and that's a valley and so on. We're just trying to look at some of the dynamics of things that need to be dealt with in our life that we might see God rend the heavens, that we might see Him... Uh, come that we would do everything within our ability uh, to prepare the way for the Lord to come. And that's our responsibility. But let's look to the Lord in prayer first. Father, we come before you now in the precious name of Jesus, and as we look at your word, we just ask for your blessing on it. Lord, teach us your ways, God. And there's never yet been an authentic revival that happened because man wanted it first. You have always been the one that has wanted it, and you stirred the hearts of people. And, Lord, sometimes the people responded. And I don't doubt that there have been times that you called and you wooed, and the people didn't respond. Uh, Yours is a heart of wanting to rescue a perishing world and to awaken the church and make a beautiful bride. And, Lord, you are constantly laboring to that end. But we have to cooperate with you. We can't expect you to do that against our will. Our will must uh, begin to conform to your will. And Lord, as we look at your word, as we have looked this evening at the idea of what these valleys can be, Lord, I just pray that you help us to look at our own lives and see these valleys and see what needs to be dealt with in them. Um, Lord, there may be some here that this will not exactly relate to. I believe that all of us can, but Lord help each of us to have a tender heart to hear what you would speak to us. In your precious and wonderful name. Amen. And so the next part of the prophecy is that every valley would be filled in. Now, of course, you know, if you tear down a mountain, you've got to have some place to put it. And the best place to put it is in the valley. All right? So, I mean, it's just kind of uh, a, a simple little thing with that. But, I mean, it's not trying to bring out that exact point. You know, some valleys are pretty obvious, and other ones aren't. And, uh, you know, from all the traveling we've done, you know, ministering across the country, you know, we've been in settings where you're driving along a road, and and you don't even realize it, and all of a sudden there's a valley in front of you. It's just like everything opens up, and it just goes down. And it may be that you are on some type of plateau or whatever, but, you know, this valley can come upon you unexpected. You're not even looking for it. Other times, you know, you kind of know it's there. And then there's those other situations that you have a valley that's totally ringed by mountains. And the only way you can really get into it, you have to somehow go over a mountain. And so you've got to deal with the mountains and get over them to get into the valleys. In Scripture, mountains sometimes are spoken of in very positive ways. So you have those mountaintop experiences. And other times, it's spoken in negative ways. And in this prophecy is an example of it being spoken in a negative way, that these mountains are things that need to be removed from our lives. We need to, to take them and cast them in the sea, as Jesus referred to once about the expression of how faith is to operate. 
and uh, these valleys, you know, I don't think there's really good thought about valleys. I think most of the time valleys are, are looked at in a very negative way. The valley of the shadow of death and where did they always fight battles. The majority of the times they fought battles was in valleys. And what they would often do is you'd have one army on one side of the mountain or hill and another one on the other side and they would rush down into the valley and that's where it would be. And then you have a valley of dry bones such as what Ezekiel speaks of. And so I don't necessarily see in scriptures that valleys are necessarily looked of in a symbolic way, in a, in a good manner. What we are in character is going to affect every person in our life. It's going to affect the church. It's going to affect the people you work with. So the quality of your character is extremely important. It's not just this little thing you need to take care of some problems. It's that you are influencing lives for good or evil. You are either building them up in the faith or you are tearing them down. You're either encouraging them or not encouraging them. And so we have to understand how important is godly character and the necessity to deal with these things. What hinders revival? Well, sin. And what is corrupt characters? The result of sin working in our lives, producing in us things that are very negative in our characters. So God wants to deal with who we are. And I think what becomes so attractive to God, and if I might put it like this, that, that we become a people that's so attractive to him that finally he can't risk and he steps down. He can't resist anymore because we have wanted him so much. We've desired him so extremely. We've dealt with so much in our life because of our desire for him. We're striving to make ourselves more and more beautiful to him. And finally, the heart of God is so moved that he steps down out of his glory to reveal himself in a unique way to a people who has prepared the way for him. And so the quality of our character is not some side issue. And I wish that I could say that there was a time it was all done. The only time our character will be complete and finished and, and right is when we walk through the pearly gates. I wish that there was a time that I could just say, I don't have to deal with the ugly old Glenn anymore. Okay? I really do. I mean, I can't tell you how weary I am of me. But yet I know that God is working in my life and that he's purifying me and he's doing it for a reason because he wants me home with him forever, but he also wants me to be somebody that helps bring others home. And so my character is extremely important. And so, you know, what we are in character will affect everyone in our life. And so is your life and character affecting people in a godly way or negative way? And, of course, we can have that, those times where we're doing a good job and affecting people in a positive way. And other times, well, we got these little corruptions in us that are causing some problems. And I'm glad God is a good and patient father and deals with us. And will correct us because he does love us and does care for us. These valleys can be secret things. But, you know, those secret things in our life are never really secret. I mean, of course God knows it and, and that, but the aspect of the secret sins affect our character. And because they affect our character, they affect how we deal with people. They, they affect everyone in our lives. So, in that sense, there's no such thing as a secret sin. It may be that people don't know the name of what your sin is. They may not even know that you're in some particular sin or have some particular issue in your life, but it is affecting everybody in your life. It's just the reality of what it is. We cannot allow sin and corruption in our character and not have it affect people. 
And so these valley issues can be these things that are in our life that we've allowed there, these secret sins, and they can sometimes be things that people see, but they minimize. Well, it's not that big a deal. Ah, you know, I mean, it's, yeah, I know he's struggling with that, but that's not a problem, you know. And so we can minimize them. And sometimes the sins that we minimize are actually humongous sins, such as you look in Revelation 2 and 3 and two of the churches that are there that the Lord rebukes, they had sexual sins that were inside that, that was going on, and he rebuked them because they tolerated them, and he rebuked them so thoroughly for that, he says, if you don't deal with it, if you don't take care of it, I'm going to take your candlestick away. So it was that serious. I'll take away your salvation because you are tolerating evil, and you're not dealing with it in a right and godly way. And so we have to deal with these sins that are in the valleys of our life. Let me just read to you uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 11 through 14. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. You understand what he's saying there? That your trials, your disciplines only do you good if you allow yourself to be trained by it. If you don't allow yourself to be trained by it, the very trials you go through are going to be misery to you and cause you problems because you get bitter and angry and you'll have all the whys and attitudes that go with it. And so we have to become a people that allow him to discipline us. Then he goes on to say, therefore strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. So he says, okay, you're, you're going weary because of the trials. You're going weary because of things that's going on in your life. So strengthen up that which is weak right now. Strengthen it. But then he makes this point that's really interesting. He says, make level paths for your feet. Now, he doesn't say, I will make level paths for your feet. He says, you make level paths for your feet. So you make these level paths. You get these things out. You, you make a, a, a road that is ready for me to come upon. And I will come to you if you'll prepare the way, if you'll make those, those, that way level. But Why? And, you know, what do we do when we go through trials? Who becomes the center of our, of our emotions at that time? Yeah, me. Me. Poor me. Why am I going through all this stuff? Why is all this stuff happening? Me. And so I gain no benefit when I become the focus of it all. But what does he say there? Make these level paths so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. So why do we do it? We have to go beyond the very aspect of the selfishness that can be in our lives that keep us from being the people we should be to realize that the trials he's going and taking us through, the things that he's teaching us are not just for our benefit and eternal salvation, but so that we can benefit others. And that's a serious thing. So he is wanting to use these things in our life instead of having the idea of what we can be as little boys and girls that just think daddy's mad at us again. We need to understand that God is using the things in our life to discipline us that he might use us in a greater way. So isn't that a comforting thing in it? He says, so get strong. Strengthen these things that are weak in you. Because, you know, I want to do something to you because there's those who are struggling, those who are, are weak, they're ready to fall. And here you are all consumed with you. That's all you can do is see you. You can't see the reality of anybody else out there that's hurting and the struggling is going. You have become consumed with you. So he wants us to deal with this. And uh, so it's for the sake of others. Now, what are some of the valleys? What are some of the things in the valleys? And if I asked you and 
you know, we don't, we're not going to take that kind of time to go through all that, but if I ask you, you could bring up some things that are very legitimate ideas of what would be in a valley. You, what would be these negative things in our life? We dealt with the mountains, these big, huge things, and some of these things are big. Because you know what? I have been to some valleys that are really, really big valleys. I mean, they really go down, you know, you go down huge mountain, and you have this massive valley that's there. So sometimes these valleys can be really huge in our lives, but they're maybe not as obvious as what the mountains are. And it's in the mountains you can really see there's this big, huge thing there. The valley you necessarily can until you get to the edge. And once you start looking over, you start seeing this massive cavern, this massive valley that's there. And sometimes you have small little ones that could be just a chasm or, a, or you know, a ravine or whatever. But sometimes they're massive things. And so what's a big one? I'm going to deal with just a few of these here and that you're going to have to take And look at your own life with this and say, God, what are the valleys in my life? So first I want to deal with is fear. Fear, that's, uh, uh, that is immobilizing. Right? How, so, any of you that have struggled with fear, you have been immobilized from it. I mean, it's, it just caused you to do nothing, really. It caused you to go in your own little self because you're so afraid, so filled with fear. Now, there's a few different kinds of fear. You have natural fear, which is an emotion that's there in the presence of danger. And so your house is on fire, and you have a fear that you're going to burn up and you want to get out. And so that's not sin, okay? That kind of fear is not sin. The fear that's, that becomes sin and is a problem with the character is that which defines the character, that we are fearful, always fearful, always concerned and worried about everything. A positive expression of fear is the fear of God. There can be a right aspect of the fear of authority, That's something that we are very much losing or have lost in America, the fear of authority. So people don't fear, fear that anymore. And you know what that plays out? It plays out to God as well, that people don't fear God. And so we have a church in America that doesn't know what the fear of God is. And so we're told that, that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So that means we have a very dumb church in America. <laughs> The negative fear is fear that's a distressing emotion that's aroused by impending danger, evil, pain, or whatever, whether it's real or perceived. So it becomes this thing that we become afraid to do something, afraid of what people say, afraid of a circumstance. And so it starts becoming mobilizing in us. You can also have the expression of cowardice. And, you know, we never really know whether we're a brave person or a coward until we're faced with the situation, we've got to start responding to something. And so we can be people that want to run away from pain and the trials and the struggles and the things that we've got to deal with, and so we run in the, constant, in the opposite direction. Those of you that have been in the drug culture like I was, you know, the drug culture, you can just, you can, you know, use drugs just as a cop-out. Just, you know, use it just to hide away. You don't want to deal with your pain, and you think that it's gone because, you know, you're so high and you don't know what anything is. But uh, the reality is those issues are still there when you sober up. And so we can have fear that is this valley that is immobilizing to us. We can have insecurities. Insecurities, that's a big one. Big one, huge today in our culture. Low self-esteem. Okay? I mean, there are so many supposed Christian books written on this that it's just outrageous. Every single one of them need to be burned in a fire because they're worthless. I don't want to say they're worthless. They're worse than that. They are detrimental and harmful to the church. All right? 
So this isn't just some little problem. It's a lie that has gotten just a hold of the church. And it's just, I mean, it's, it's crazy. They have conferences on it. They have seminars on it. They have books galore. And yet they're all totally off the wall because they're not founded on truth. So, what is low self-esteem? Well, it's the other side of the coin of pride. You see, it's pride. Low self-esteem is pride. We're afraid of what people think. So a dimension of fear is pride. That goes in with, with insecurity and low self-esteem. It's just, it's just an expression of, of, of pride that's there. And so we have to deal with it because we're now afraid of what people are going to say. So the insecure person will sit in a corner and say nothing because they're afraid of what people say. So it's pride. And so the pride has to be dealt with. God is not out, out after low self-esteem. Or high self-esteem. Both are expressions of pride. He's out after our identity being in Christ. Not our identity in self. That's the problem. We get our identity in self. It's all about me. And then we make life all about me. And marriage all about me. So it's all about my happiness. And we start self-destructing. Destroying everything. Because we're doing it all wrong. Rather than Christ being the center. We have made self the center of everything. And it's all about me. And that's basically humanism. Because humanism is all about the individual, all about self. And so insecurities and low self-esteem is just an expression of fear. It's an expression of pride. And most of all, it's an expression of self-absorption. So it's just looking at me. It's a very sad thing because there's no joy in it. There's no help in it. I mean, there's no strength in it. It's just a very sad thing because it gets us so self-absorbed, we destroy and ruin everything that we touch then as a result of it, instead of understanding that God has something totally different and so much better for us. 1904 Welsh Revival, this is what I've been sharing predominantly with some accounts, and I'm going to share just a couple short ones tonight. But uh, there's a 15-year-old girl, and she wanted to testify of her great love for God, but she was shy and afraid to break the order of service. And so she's trying to muster up her courage, and finally she just felt that she had to, and at last she gained the courage, and with tears streaming down her face, she cried out, Oh, how I love the Lord Jesus! Oh, how I love the Lord Jesus! Oh, how I love the Lord Jesus! She repeated this many times. An old deacon was at the pulpit trying to close the service. But then this girl broke the alabaster box with her very simple little testimony. And the house was filled with the fragrance of it in a moment. All the meeting instantly changed. You see, until that point, it was just kind of going on and not doing much. And then this girl just broke open that alabaster jar and the perfume came out. And all the meeting people in the meeting humbled themselves before the Lord. And they forgot time. And they were weeping nearly all night long. There was something in the very air that made the people long to give their hearts to the Lord Jesus that were not saved. Because that 15-year-old girl put aside her fear. Put aside the supposed insecurities. And allowed her to break through, and God responded. See, God's not looking for the wise or the great or the famous or anything else. He's looking for the obedient.
You understand? That's why character is so important because it's all about obedience. It's all about saying, God, I want you to rule everything of me. I want you to rule my emotions. I want you to rule how I think. I want you to rule these things because my self-life doesn't want that. Doesn't want that. It wants to do its own thing. God, so I'm asking for you to help me to bring these under your rule. Is there a fight with it? Absolutely. You know, is it worth it? Absolutely more. It is. You know, it really is. Another valley is depression. We are one of the most prosperous nations in the world and most depressed. What's wrong with that picture? I mean, you understand? What's wrong with that picture? We got prosperity galore, and yet, you know, the business, the industry of antidepressants and all the other psychotropics is exploding. It's a, I, don't, I don't know how much of a business it is. I have to imagine it's in the billions a year. I mean, it's unbelievable how many church folk are on psychotropic drugs. Now, I'm not telling you if you're on them to get off them right now. There's the right way to do them because those things are crazy, and that's all I'll say about it. But what is depression ultimately? Now, I'm not going to deny that there are some cases where there are issues going on in the body. I don't want to deny that, but those are not the norm. The majority of people that are on those, they have their life all twisted, and as a result, they're looking for something to fix them without having to come to Christ. I'm talking about church folk. I'm talking about church people here. Not, the world doesn't know any better. They have no hope. So, you know, the, the, the best that they can do is look at numbing the pain in their life. But for us who should have the hope, who should be living in that place of fellowship with them, this is something that is serious. Now, it's a trap, and I don't want to diminish how, how horrifying that trap is. The misery of it. It is miserable. I'm not wanting to downplay how hard it is to get out of that trap and to change the way that we think. Because that's really the only way that it's going to happen because we have to change the way that we think. But you see this valley of depression is it gets a grip on a life and then it develops a character and that character gets so stuck unless there is the purposeful effort saying, I cannot, I will not live in this any longer. God, teach me how to overcome. Because there's a way to overcome. And so we have to be willing to deal with that. Because, you know, let me just... I'm not wanting to be mean here, but what is the majority of all depression? Self-absorption. Right? What do you think about when you're depressed? You know, I mean, when people re are getting depressed, what, what aren't they looking at? They're not looking at Jesus. They're looking at themselves. And so what does Jesus want us to do? You know, he's the remedy. He's constantly the remedy. Always the remedy. You know, it really is where our eyes are fixed. So Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Fix your heart and mind on things above. Get them off of you. Now, if you have been the center of all your thoughts and affections and emotions, to get them off of you is going to be one serious battle. Because you have developed a character now that is consumed in this. This is all you've thought. This is all you've done. And unless you are willing to go to war to fight this, you will not change how you think and act. So that's why in the what I read in Hebrews there that you have to make straight paths. Now, of course, when we strive to do this, we say, God, this is a battle that it's just, I don't know how to win this. This had a hold of me for so long. When we begin to fight, he will give grace. 
He will give grace. And then that's also what the body of Christ is there for, to help us through it. He's not expecting us to overcome through our own abilities and wisdom. He understands the weakness of our frame, and he will be there to help us, but we've got to cry out for the help, be willing to do what it takes to overcome, look to the body of Christ for the strength that's there, but most of all, get our eyes fixed on Jesus. And you know, it works. I'm not going to take the time to get into all this, but it's one of the valleys, and I believe it's a terrible valley. It is a terrible, miserable valley. I, I, I... I, my heart breaks for those who struggle in this. You know, it really does. I mean, I've battled, you know, a, a day with, you know, just having the blues type of thing. You know, I mean, I've never been stuck in something like that. But I've, from that day, from those occasional rare days that I might have where I just feel all hell coming against me and that, that comes, it makes me sympathetic to those who live under that. Terrible stuff. But there's a God that's an answer. Now, I'm going to get a little more modern here, okay? A valley, the valley of social media, the valley of your phones, the valley of gaming, the valley of music, the valley of TV and of sports and just wanting to play and entertainment and, and, and pleasure. These valleys, these things that we look to to take the place of what God should be filling. That we make it something in our life that becomes so important to us that we want this to fill our, the, the time in our life instead of learning how to allow Christ to become the all in all of our life. And these can be just monumental things. There's, there's, there's hosts of people out there, even within the church, that they'll, they'll turn the television on in the morning and have it go all day long. If you went and cut their cable off, they would go through withdrawals worse than any heroin addict. I'm not kidding. Take some people's phones away, and they'll be, they'll be crying in a fetal position because they are so addicted to it. They are so plugged into it. It so consumes them, but yet it's also defining them. It's defining them. It's defining how they think. It's defining how they talk. It's defining how they even dress. You understand? I mean, when the church starts dressing like the world, just because it's been watching the world... And you know, it's, I don't want to get off on this. I want to stop in just a, a second here after I read a story. But um, I was just looking at Isaiah chapter 6. And um, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, that God showed himself to Isaiah. That is a very, very important phrase. Uzziah was a good king in the beginning. He had a counselor. His name was Zechariah. Zechariah was not the Zechariah that wrote uh, the book of Zechariah. But he was a godly man, a priest, I believe, if I remember correctly. And he was a powerful influence in Uzziah's uh, uh, life. But he died when the king was roughly 40 years old. And so he had nobody else now that he would allow to guide him. And so what ended up happening, he started looking to the kings all around him. And he wanted to become like the kings all around him. He got lifted up in pride. And what were all the kings? All the kings all around him of all the pagan nations, they were priest kings. They would be kings and priests within the primary religion. 
And so he wanted to be a priest king. So what does he do? He goes into the temple to offer up incense, and the priest, doing what was right, came and confronted the king, says, you are king, but you have no right here. This alone belongs to the sons of Aaron. You are not allowed in here. And he and his defiance tried to, to stay there, but he was smote immediately with leprosy. The year that pride died, God showed up. That's really what it's trying to tell us in the midst of it. The year that pride died, God showed up. You see, we have these things in our life we need to take care of, these valleys that we need to tear down, these things that are obstacles, hindrances to God. We have to allow Him to do it. We have to want it. We have to welcome it. God is not out trying to go and beat us up and say, you worthless, good-for-nothing, you know, uh, woman or guy. You know, He's not out. That's not His agenda. His, I, his heart is to purify His children to make them more and more beautiful, more and more holy, more and more we can pour Himself into them and through them and touch other lives. He's not out to hurt us. He's not out to go and just beat us down. But when He does convict, there's a reason for it. And we need to understand what that reason is and be willing to deal with it. Let me just close with a story. Real quick one. 1904 World's Revival again. Almost everyone in attendance was moved to tears. Many cried in agony. By midnight, the presence of the Lord was so intense that it could hardly be contained. The people had never experienced such deep repentance or such deep joy. Those crying in remorse for their sins could not be distinguished from those crying in ecstasy at the nearness of God. It was after 3 a.m. before any attempt to close the meeting was even possible. You understand, these were all men that were miners and workers, and here they had to get up at 4 or 5 in the morning, and it's 3 o'clock, and they're still in this place because God was so present. And you couldn't tell the difference between those who were weeping out of conviction and repentance and those who were weeping out of utter joy. And when we take the path of weeping in repentance, we will then move on to the place of weeping in joy. You understand? It's the repentance that leads us into joy, and it's the absence of repentance that keeps us from 